Hi, welcome back. I'm Dave and this is uh, Police Stories Podcast. This is a series of short stories about my 28-year career in the UK police force. So thanks for coming back, if you have, and if not, welcome, if this is your first time. Um, I've been doing a, a series of stories, like I said, downloads are going really well. Um, thanks ever so much. I'm absolutely amazed we're almost at uh, 1500 downloads uh, which I'm you know absolutely uh, amazed at to be honest with you and so thank you very much for all taking part in that hopefully it will continue so um, as you know we probably we always have some musings and some uh, definitely some uh, tangents that I'll go off on at various points but really this is just trying to give you an understanding of certainly some of the jobs that I dealt with but also a little bit about you know my kind of thought processes throughout uh, my career dealing with various jobs. Um, so the one we're going to talk about today, it is a death again, unfortunately. You know, I can't really get away from it, unfortunately. If you're listening to, you know, police stories, this is just how it is. Now, last week, I actually, I really enjoyed that episode. It was quite a fun episode. You know, I could have a bit of a laugh with you all about it, you know, and I, and I did enjoy talking about it. But Obviously, a lot of the subjects we dealt with, you know, you just can't have fun with. So I'm aware that possibly, you know, comes across as a bit uh, melancholy. But again, how how do you have fun, you know, with with some of these subjects? You can't. So when I can, I will. You know, certainly um, the police is very well known, perhaps less so now, but certainly when I joined for inappropriate, you know, kind of humour. They used to call it black humour. You know, you're not even allowed to call it that now. But um it's you know canteen culture you hear it called various things and i have to say that is what kind of gets you through a shift you know um it doesn't matter what you've been and dealt with you know how horrible it is what you know muck you've fallen in um you know your colleagues will get you through it with a bit of banter and, and mickey taking you know that's that's kind of how it's it's always worked and i appreciate it in some cases you know perhaps it goes too far um, but for me personally, you know, um, I always enjoyed the banter. It was good. I was going to talk briefly as well about uh, why I joined the police. Now, uh, you always see the interviews on telly, don't you? They, they always crack me up when um, they speak to cops, you know, and, and police officers and say, you know, so why did you join the police? And there is the stock answer that I kind of roll my answer. Well, I wanted to help people, you know, and I um, wanted to do something for my community, you know. Well, maybe they did, you know, perhaps I'm not sure. For me, personally um you know i joined it was almost a natural progression you know i'd had a number of jobs uh, i joined at 21 i'd had loads of different jobs i'd been like a commercial fisherman and a door-to-door window salesman you know i'd worked in shops and all sorts of things but the kind of uh guiding light if you like for me was my dad um who was a police officer as well you know he did almost 30 years uh, as well in in uh, just the one force for him but got to a decent rank, you know, superintendent and was a detective for a lot of his career. And certainly, so I was always in and around the kind of police, um, you know, kind of environment and people. Um, He was big into his shooting, his clay pigeon shooting. So that kind of uh, let me grow up around sort of firearms and shotguns. Um, I used to sort of go with him on a lot of his trips where he would compete in, in various um, sort of shooting competitions um, uh, all around the country so uh, very much sort of kept me in, in that sort of police circle and and the firearm side of things which you know later on is pretty much how my career panned out um, 
So I think for me, I wouldn't say it was expected, there was certainly no pressure, but for me, you know, I heard all these great tales of all the things that my dad had got up to, you know, and, and some of his sort of friends uh, from being, you know, a young lad. So um, this this career just sounded fantastic. You know, it sounded, um, you know, really, really exciting, you know, lots of good stuff happening. And of course, they didn't tell me the stories about, oh, well, you know, you'll be headbutted and spat on, you know, and um, attacked with, you know, knives and have guns pointed at you and all the rest of it. That wasn't an everyday occurrence, but it certainly did happen throughout my career, you know, and we'll we'll come on to those for sure at some point. Um, so yeah, but for me, it was kind of a bit of a natural progression, you know, so I was really interested. It sounded great fun, quite frankly, you know, like a really good adventure. The money eventually isn't bad either, to be honest with you. I mean, you could argue, um, you know, when you're en route to a really nasty job, you know, a fight with knives involved, you know, or someone's been shot or someone's been stabbed or whatever. There's definitely times where you think, you know, I am not paid enough for this. Um, but who doesn't think that, you know, in whatever job that you do? Um, so, uh, yeah, for me, really, it was probably for the, you know, the kind of the adventure and for a fun job that was reasonably well paid. That That's the reality of it. Does that make me shallow, you know, for not wanting to help the community? Well, in fairness, I think I probably did a bit of that in my career. Um, you know, I, I almost certainly help people, you know, at some point throughout my career. I'm not saying it was all the time, but certainly for me, it was just a, it was a fun job mostly. You know, a lot of people moan about it, particularly in the job. And it drives me mad, you know, that people in the job will um kind of moan incessantly about oh this is you know bad and I've been made to do that and now I've got to do this and all the rest of it and of course we all like a moan you know certainly in the job in the police you know it's a, it's our favorite thing it's almost our god-given right you know we'll have a whinge about something and again I'm sure other jobs are the same but the police internally perhaps is particularly bad for it you know morale can be low it is hard when you're constantly battered by the press, you know, time after time, you know, you, you read in the press about how bad cops are and all the rest of it. Um, and things like, um, you know, the Sarah Everard case, uh, it was terrible, you know, where a serving police officer, you know, murdered someone. Um, you know, it's a terrible thing. Um, however, you know, the, the backlash against the police after that and the Met particularly, um, and of course I'm biased, you know, was completely over the top in my opinion, you know, that was uh, one cop out of 35,000 that are in the Met, you know, and I know subsequently there's been more that have, you know, been found out for various offences. But I bet if you took, you know, a cross section of dentists, you know, taxi drivers, uh, you know, pub landlords, whoever it is, you probably unfortunately find there is, you know, those as well that are also responsible for those, you know, for terrible crimes similar to that. But I get that as a cop, as a police officer, you know, you are meant to be, um, you know, not a lawbreaker in any way. Do you know what I mean? People perhaps accept, you know, at cabbies speed and pub landlords, you know, fiddle their taxes. Not all of them, obviously. I apologise to landlords. But do you know what I'm saying? You know, the police should be really um, that cut above in terms of law abiding. So I think when a police officer commits an offence, you know, especially these terrible ones, um, you know, it's even more shocking. Um, but the reality is, you know, people then call massively for, you know, let's disband the police. Let's, you know, have a, a rule of the people and all that. Um, and it used to make me laugh that you'd go to incidents, you know, wherever uh, and you'd come across, you know, a hardened criminal who to your face would say, you know, I hate you and I wish there was no police and etc. Um 
but the reality is the following week would call you because there was a guy at his door with a baseball bat, you know, or he'd ring you to say, I've been assaulted, someone's attacked me, you know, and you'd, you'd kind of want to say, well, okay, well, don't bother calling us because last week you told me the police were useless. Why are you bothering me? Just deal with it yourself, you know. But the reality is the vast majority of cops are too professional to do that. We'll do our job, you know, which is looking after people and, um, you know, upholding the law and trying to get convictions and send bad guys and girls to prison. That's what we do. Unfortunately, you know, there's an awful lot of obstacles in our way and you certainly feel like the, the deck is stacked against you sometimes, you know. Um, but that's just how it is. And, and basically, I say to people that, you know, moan about it in the job, you need to look for another job then, you know, but don't just stay here and moan and bring everyone else down. You know, it's within your power to do something about it and change it. So do it, you know. Um, and if the sort of constant battering of the press and, you know, trying to get cases to court or seeing cases go to court time after time and they get pathetic sentences, you know, it drives you mad when you've had a really good job. You put months of work into a job and they walk away with, you know, barely a slap on the wrist. And, and it's a terrible thing to go back to that victim of crime and say, look, good news, we've got a conviction. You know, the person who assaulted you, um, you know, was sentenced and they say, oh, great. What did they get? You know, and you say, well, conditional discharge for 12 months. And they're like, oh, right, that's excellent. What is that? You know, and you say, well, basically nothing happens to them. But if they reoffend within 12 months, they'll get this original sentence as well. You know, and they're kind of saying, I'm sorry. So, so they've got this sentence, but basically nothing happens to them at all. And you have to, again, embarrassingly kind of say, yeah, that's the case, you know. Um, so, yeah, but if you can't deal with that stuff, you are going to have to look for another job because it's going to come back at you time and time again throughout your career. Anyway, that's some ramblings. Let's talk about this job. A sudden death again, unfortunately, a suspicious death this time um, with a couple of twists in it. Um, and again, another one of those classics for me that I found myself in a scenario where I was thinking, you know, there must be an easier way of making a living. Why, you know, why am I doing this? How have I found myself in this situation? Um, so I came on shift and it was a night turn and I was expecting to do whatever. I think it was like a, a midday, uh, sorry, a midweek, you know, sort of uh, day. You know, it wasn't like a Friday night or anything. It was like a Tuesday or Wednesday evening or something. So weren't expecting it to be crazy busy. Was hoping to catch up on some paperwork, which invariably you always are. Um, and as soon as I came on duty, which was at, I think, then 2200 hours, 10 p.m., uh, I was told, you know, get a car, get some kit and head over to this this village. You know, now this village was right on the outskirts of our ground. It was the border, basically, between us and the next county on the south coast of the UK. Tiny little place, you know, very few residents, probably, I don't know, a couple of thousand residents, if that, you know, but very, very sort of historic town, a sink port, they call it, you know, which is uh, means that it used to be a busy sort of shipping port, you know, way back, you know, hundreds of years ago. But slowly the waters receded it and has left it basically sort of high and dry. Um, not that much problems at these sort of places, but unfortunately it doesn't matter what sleepy hollow you live in, there will be a few issues there without a doubt. And, you know, a small town like that or a village, in fact, only needs, you know, two or three people that regularly cause you problems to, you know, sometimes make, you know, the rest of the residents' lives a misery, quite frankly. So uh, anyway, I got this call. I was tasked to go over there. I wasn't really told what it was about. It wasn't elaborated on too much. It was just like, get your kit, get in the car and head over there and you'll be updated when you get there. It was quite a long drive. It was about an hour or so. Just me driving out to this place uh, through the sort of rural twisty roads in, in the pitch black. 
Um, and if you remember from the last one, you know, some of my colleagues are telling you I was scared of the dark, but honestly, that wasn't the case. It was just a wind up. Um, so headed out to this place and uh, didn't really know what to expect. But to be honest, with you, I quite liked that. I quite liked, you know, always enjoyed that about the police having to think on your feet, you know, and people say, well, what if this? What if that? You know, and you say, well, tell you what, let it happen and we'll figure it out. You know, and I had a pretty laid back attitude, you know, in most occasions to, to things happening, you know, and just dealt with it, really. Um, so I get out to this location. It's a small uh, semi-detached bungalow, just a one bedroom property, very small, the sort of place. And in fact, as this was the case that you would find um, an elderly person living in, you know, very, very small property, a few of them sort of um, put together. And um, when I got there, there was already a DS there, detective sergeant from CID, and we talked about CID last week. So they tend to deal with the sort of more serious crimes. And he briefed me and, and what had happened was, and I was a bit shocked because I didn't really know much of this before I went at all. So basically inside the address was a deceased female. There was a woman who died and, and it was fairly horrific. Um, the scenario was she was elderly. I think she was kind of in her 80s and she lived by herself in this small bungalow. Um, I think she had a couple of children. When I say children, you know, they were grown up. So like her son and daughter, I think were kind of, you know, 40, 50 years old. And she had, it was, uh, it was the winter. I remember that. So it was very cold. And she had an extra fire to keep warm, which was one of those, and hopefully you know what I mean, but like a three bar electric fire. So when you plug it in, it's got these three, you know, sort of electric bars that heat up red and it has a little grill across the front of it to save you kind of burning yourself. Um, they're not very effective. They're very expensive to run. And, but quite often, you know, you, you see sort of elderly people with them because they basically set them up, you know, right in front of their chair. So they're getting the direct heat onto them. Um, and unfortunately, this poor woman, she was dressed in something that lots of sort of elderly women wore at the time, which was these kind of nylon dresses, normally like very floral, you know, and sort of bright colours. Um, but nylon all the same. Um, I guess they were, you know, fairly cheap to buy. Um, but unfortunately, the problem with nylon is very, very flammable. And what we believe happened, and you'll see as we get through the story, you know, that that's, you take that with a pinch of salt, is that she had quite a long flowing, you know, nylon dress on, and we've already said very, very flammable. And we think that she had a fall, you know, sort of on or near this fire. Um, and unfortunately, her dress must have got onto it through the grill, um, because basically it set her alight completely so she was really really badly burnt um and wasn't in a position to raise the alarm anyway so uh you know there was no sort of phone call to anyone you know she was properly alight and unfortunately that's how she died you know she died there uh sort of partially slumped across the fire with the the cinders of her nylon dress is all that was left really um so the slight issue was uh, the, the the daughter, I believe, lived a long way away and kind of didn't have much contact with mum and, and stayed away. But the son, who, remember, was kind of, yeah, 40 or 50 years old, I think, um, he was around quite a bit. Now, um, CID had done some house-to-house -house inquiries, and what they discovered was that the son um, hadn't been around too much until recently. And as his mum's uh, health took a turn for the worse, he had started sort of showing up quite a bit. He was back on the scene quite a lot more. And he visited her fairly regularly. 
Um, but neighbours reported that they'd heard, you know, a few arguments and um, saying that he was at the address virtually every day, but that was a relatively new thing. Um, and since this had happened, he hadn't been seen. Um, so there's a few concerns there, you know, and unfortunately our kind of policey brain and particularly the CID as well, you know, we never sort of take things what we see, you know, you need to sort of see a bit of evidence, you need to do some digging, checking, you know, CCTV if it's there and speaking to neighbours and things. So we're trying to build up a picture. What appeared on the surface, very straightforward and genuinely it could have been, you know, it could have been nothing more than a terrible accident. Um, there may be a bit more to it. So the DS had said to me, there's a few, he'd explained this to me, and he said there's a few concerns around and about the sun. Um, so basically, we are going to make this this address uh, a scene tonight, a crime scene. And that's quite common in deaths that you are a little bit concerned about. You know, there might be suspicious, there could be more to it. If it's a straightforward sudden death and you've got, you know, a doctor there saying it's a medical death, they had cancer, they're expected to die and they have died, and I'll sign the death certificate, you know, that's not going to become a crime scene. But in this scenario, where there's a few unanswered questions, and we just wanted to preserve the integrity of that scene. Now, normally, or quite often, that would have been done um, with a cop in a car, for example, sat outside the address. Um, the slight issue is that, you know, somebody, and let's say the son, for example, um, who had a key, you know, might have been able to let himself in round the back of the address and get in without us knowing. So it was decided that I was going to maintain the crime scene that night and I was tasked to stay in the address. Now, don't forget that, you know, paramedics, doctors, various cops, CID and what have you had already sort of traipsed through the address. And in terms of forensics as well, bearing in mind that we knew the son uh, had been back and forth quite a bit. So it wasn't like we were going to come up with, you know, the son's DNA and go, aha, you know, he's been here and therefore he must have been up to no good. We expected to find his DNA in the address. So nothing was going to be ruined. But what they didn't want was the sun coming in or turning up at all to that address overnight. And basically the following day, there was going to be uh, like a crime scene manager and there was going to be the full forensic team kind of look at things. Um, but until that time, and bearing in mind it was now quite late, um, they wanted to just preserve that scene overnight. So that was my job for the night. I was tasked to stay in the address and the woman was still in situ. So the body was on the floor, half draped across um, this fire and uh, the smell you can imagine you know uh, burnt human flesh we have discovered we have talked about this before in a previous episode you know really really unpleasant smell you can't get away from the fact that it does smell a bit like pork you know it is it is a bit of a barbecuey smell to be honest with you which is a bit unnerving but but it is um so uh and i was told that i could stay in this address and the telly was on um, but I was told basically don't kind of touch anything, you know, you just basically, and the DS said to me, um, you know, we've had a quick search of the sofa and things, you're okay to sit on the sofa, you know, we don't expect you to, to stand up in the room all the time, and we can't put you, we can only put one cop to this overnight, so we can't put you in a car out the front of the dress because of the concern about the back, so we want you in the address, and basically you just got to sit there on the sofa all night. So you think, okay, um, so he clutters off and I've got the scene log now and remember I think we spoke last week about scene logs so this is a, a booklet you know that records everyone who's come in and out of that scene because we might need to rule out some DNA or some fingerprints or something that's been found in that address subsequently 
Um, so we need to figure out if that person should have been there or not. So I had the scene log and it's as simple as, you know, put my name and details on and just put that I've arrived, you know, and at, and at 2300 hours I've taken over the, the crime scene and that's it. They said to me, no one's expected overnight, you know, you'll get relieved at kind of seven in the morning, early term will come and take over from you. Um, so that's it. So I'd already been warned to bring some sort of food and drink with me. So I had that in the car. But other than that, that was it. And obviously clear instructions, nobody else comes in. We don't want anyone else coming into the scene. So that was me for the night. Um, now, like I said to you earlier, very strange scenario, really, to be honest with you. Um, it's a picture of the scene. There's me. I'm sat on the sofa with the telly on. And then at my feet, pretty much, is this fire, which has now been turned off. And the carpet is burnt. And... Um, you know, there's a certain amount of sort of fire damage to the edge of the sofa and the carpet and around. And then partially on top of this fire is this poor old woman who, you know, has been killed and is burnt to a crisp, quite frankly. You can't put it any other way. So you've got this permanent smell, um, a very specific, you know, like I said, barbecue pork type smell. Um and that was it. That was me for the night, you know. And again, you know, very much a time where you're thinking, wow, you know, there must be a better way of making a living this. This is just weird, you know, quite frankly. Um, but throughout my career, uh, and again, some people might think this is weird, I found myself, if I had to move bodies, certainly, um, I might well kind of not talk to them, but maybe apologise. And so, for example, if you're trying to move a body, if there's someone who's like, Several times I went out to hangings where people had hung themselves behind doors. It seemed to be a favourite thing that they would tie a, a belt, you know, that you'd have on your trousers or or rope, noose, a washing line, something to the door handle of a, of a normal internal door in a house. And then they would throw that um, rope over top of the door and then around their neck on the other side and hang themselves. Now, you have to understand that to do that, that involves you now forcing your body weight down onto um you know the rope and at any point you have to remember you can stand up to stop it do you know what i mean so i was always amazed at the people that have committed suicide like that because it's within your power to stop it all you've got to do is stand up you know if you throw yourself off a bridge if you take an overdose once it's done it's done you know they always say that uh regret is the last thing that goes through someone's mind who's thrown themselves off you know a tall building or whatever uh, or a bridge into a river or something and i don't know if that's the case um but when you're trying to move people in that scenario it's very difficult once once photos have been taken and the scene's been dealt with you have to physically manhandle these people to get them into a body bag with the undertakers and get them out of the address but there's no pretty way of doing that so I used to find myself, if I had to literally physically get hold of someone's arm, leg or whatever it was and move them, you know, quite often they'd fall in an unnatural way. You know, their arm would sort of flop out of the bag and bang into the uh, into the doorway or something, you know. And I'd always be like, oh, sorry about that, you know. And afterwards I think, that's weird. Why am I talking to this dead person? But for me, I don't know. It's just something I always did. I always kind of apologise if I had to lift them in an ungainly way or... Um, it's just respectful perhaps I don't know uh, as I say some people I think it's weird but um, you know you needed to te you know to sort of treat these people with a bit of dignity but uh, so back to our story so I'm sat there on the sofa watching the telly with this poor woman at my feet and um, after a while um, 
basically I, I had to go out to the car briefly and get you know my food and drink which I didn't want to eat in the house so I sort of stood on the doorway um neighbors I think knew I was still there obviously my car was at the front it was a uniform car so it's pretty obvious and once I'd had a drink and eaten I went back into the address and by now it's about two or three in the morning and remember this is the time kind of pre you know mobile phones it's not like we sat there on the internet or anything you know that, that you didn't have that option you might have had a phone with you but it probably made a phone call that was it and a text you know um like i say the telly was on but i'm pretty sure this was the days that certainly uk tv finished at midnight you know there was nothing on um so you just kind of sat there so you literally were just whiling away the hours so anyway about three o'clock in the morning there's a knock at the door now bearing in mind i'm not expecting anyone um you know, I was a bit sort of surprised to say the least. So I went to the door and it was the, it was the son of the deceased lady. And obviously I'd been warned, you know, that he might come to the address, but they didn't expect it overnight and neither did I. Um, so it was a bit strange and I knew he'd been told. So he did know that his mum had died. So I didn't have to sort of deliver a death message there and then, which was something. And initially he was pretty friendly to me uh, and said, oh, hi, you know, I was told, you know, somebody would be here with mum overnight. You know, well, firstly, he just checked, you know, so is mum still here? And I said, yes, she is. You know, there's going to be some uh, more tests and some photos and things carried out in the morning, but we couldn't do them, you know, sort of overnight. So so it's going to be in the morning now. So I'm just here with her. Uh, and he said straight away, well, that's a bit weird. I want to come in and be with my mum. You know, and, and grief is a, a difficult thing, isn't it? You know, everyone kind of takes it in a different way and reacts to it differently. Um, but the reality is I had to very delicately explain to him, you know, look, I'm really sorry, but, you know, no one can come in. Of course, he immediately got a bit arsy with me, basically, and was like, well, hang on a sec, how can a complete stranger sit in with my mum, but, you know, but her own son can't? And he said, and anyway, I need to pick up some paperwork. So obviously this got the kind of, you know, hairs on the back of my neck standing up a bit. I was like, look, you just can't come in. And it got to the point where I had to be quite sort of forceful with him, really, to say, you know, I, I realise, you know, it's a difficult time and I know you've, you know, probably got family affairs to sort out, but possibly three o'clock in the morning isn't the time to do it. You know, your mum is still laying there. Um, obviously, with time, you know, you're going to be able to come in. But he wasn't happy and um, he stormed off back to his car and he immediately rang in and, you know, said that he wants to make a complaint against me and or about me and what have you. Um, now, complaints is something you deal with all the time in the police. You know, everyone wants to complain pretty much. It's rare that someone sort of gives you a pat on the back and says, job well done. You know, it's normally like, I want to complain. Um, and you're like, right, oh, yeah, join the queue. Um, they used to say that unless you had a number of complaints outstanding as a cop, you weren't doing your job properly. Because the reality is people don't like to be arrested. You know, it's far easier for them to convince the cop that they should just leave it alone. And, oh, it's a lot of paperwork. Why don't we all forget about it? You know. But the cop that takes it that bit further and says, I'm sorry, you're not going to like it, but you're getting arrested, you know, um, they don't like that. So ultimately, they'll try and wriggle out of it any way they can. And if that means trying to muddy the water by complaining about you, then they will. Um, so I think at one point I had probably 10 complaints outstanding against me. Um, and invariably, you know, a lot of those will be like, he used excessive force, which is a classic that gets leveled against the police. You have to remember that a lot of these people have never heard the word no in their life. Now, you can blame the parents for that because sometimes, you know, throughout his growing up, little Johnny has never been told no by mum or dad. You know, they've just taken the easy route and kind of let him do whatever it is. So you might find that you're the very first person that is telling them no 
And of course, they don't like it. And they think that if they shout louder than you or if they flail their arms about or whatever, that's going to change it. And actually, oh, I'll tell you what, then we'll just leave it, shall we? I won't bother nicking you, you know. Well, that's not happening, you know. So you can imagine people don't like it. Uh, and they don't realise the sort of powers, you know, that you can use. Obviously, we always try and use the reasonable force and the minimum force. But ultimately, if people want to fight with you, then, you know, that's what's going to happen. We are going to fight, you know, and that, unfortunately, isn't always pretty. Another criticism that gets levelled regularly at the police is that it took six cops just to arrest this one person. Well, the difference is, unfortunately, no matter how bad it gets, we still try and stick with, you know, the sort of approved techniques and, and a, a sort of the correct way in restraining people so that they're not injured, so that they don't, you know, die in custody, which does happen, unfortunately, occasionally. We've learned a lot over the years, you know, um, there's something called positional asphyxia. Now, big guys, particularly ones that have kind of big stomachs, um, if you leave them lying on their front, especially when you're sort of struggling with them to get them in handcuffs, let's say, there's a very real risk that they'll die of positional asphyxia. Now, we learned this years ago, so you have to roll people on their sides so that they can breathe properly, because otherwise they've got their full weight, you know, sort of pushing down on their chest. Um, so, yeah, quite often now, you know, it took six cops to restrain that one person because we're trying to do it in such a way that we just don't smash them to bits. Do you know what I mean? It, now, unfortunately, the public don't have to play by rules. So that person will happily bite you, spit in your face, headbutt you, kick you in the head, you know, knee you in the groin, whatever it takes. We can't do that. So we have to do things in a certain way. Um, and that means, you know, more cops make it a safer arrest. But yeah, so regularly levelled us that, you know, oh, too many police to deal with that person. So that's the story. Another tangent. Um, so I dealt with uh, the, the son uh, and basically went to his car. He had a bit of a grumble and a moan about it. He rang up to complain about me and that's fine. Um, at the end of the day, I was just doing what I was told. He wasn't getting the address and uh, we stayed in the address overnight or I stayed in the address overnight. Um, so I had, you know, nigh on by the time I got relieved in the morning about seven o'clock in the morning nigh on eight hours of sitting there with this poor woman um the son eventually went and uh I kept my eye out for him but I never saw him again he didn't come back and at kind of you know seven eight in the morning uh the early turn came and relieved me and then subsequently you know the, exactly what we thought would happen happened you know the crime scene manager came in and there was scenes of crime photos taken and there was some forensics looked at and things and you're probably saying but I've ruined the scene because I was in there but don't forget they've got my DNA they've got my fingerprints so they're able to eliminate me from any of those inquiries um, so the end result is you're probably wondering there was a lot of inquiries carried out into the sun um, ultimately they could never prove what happened to the woman. It did go down, um, the coroner decided it, it was an accident in the end and that her dress caught light and she died like that. Um, they could never prove that the son had any involvement. Did he? I don't know. Difficult to call. Um, like I say, he'd come back on the scene possibly because he realised that mum was on her way out, you know, because her health was declining anyway. Who knows? Um, it's one of those that, unfortunately, we never will know the answer to. But I did my bit that night, and uh, unpleasant as it was, it's uh, certainly a, a different sort of night, that's for sure. But uh, that's it. That's the incident for today. Thanks very much for listening. Episode 24 over, and we'll continue on the following week. Thanks very much for listening. 
continue to download. We're on YouTube and all the various sort of podcast type apps. Please uh, tell any friends you think or post it up in any groups if you're in any sort of, you know, true crime type groups or, or just tell anyone you think might be interested. I'd appreciate it. I'd hope to continue to grow it, but I'm very pleased with how it's going so far. Thanks very much for your time. Take it easy. Speak soon. Bye.